water, earth, fire, air. My grandmother used to tell me stories about the old days, a time of peace when the Avatar kept balance between the water tribes, earth kingdom, fire nation, and air nomads. But all that changed when the fire nation attacked. <clears throat> so, confession time. I've only ever seen the first episode of The Last Airbender. I know, I know, I know. It's a travesty. I'm really bad at starting shows, and my attention span is really bad, which is why I'm bad at starting shows. I'm even bad at watching movies, so please don't cancel me. I definitely want to watch it, but I'm taking a break from streaming services right now. But yeah, I just didn't know how else to... I didn't know how else to introduce this topic without making a very important cultural reference. So I just took the opportunity and here we are. I'm exposing myself to the world. Um, but yeah, hopefully your attention span doesn't suck as bad as mine because today we're going to dive into the four elements, their history, and how they're used as a building block to astrology and some other stuff as well. Hi, my name's Cheyenne, but you can call me Shay, and today is the inaugural episode of the Occultish Podcast. Before we dive into the topic at hand, I want to introduce the purpose of this podcast. Well, I guess purpose sounds like really deep and I guess we could sit here and talk for hours about like true purpose and what is the meaning in life. But for right now, I'll just introduce myself and kind of what this podcast is going to be about, what it's going to look like. So I run the Twitter account Clastrology uh, with an underscore at the end because all of the good names on Twitter have been taken for at least a decade at this point. And yeah, I've been studying and writing about astrology for just under five years. I've probably been studying for like four and a half almost, I would say. And then my Twitter account I started in September of 2017, or at least that's when I started tweeting on it. So yeah, almost three years. I mean, it feels like a lifetime that I've been on Twitter because... Twitter can be this crazy and draining place, but it's also very lovely as well. Um, and yeah, so I'm definitely in the beginning stages of my career, you know, the student phase, but we're all students. We'll be forever students. So um, my whole thing has always been, this is a learning experience for me and also for the people that follow me. I can learn from them. They can learn from me and we can expand our knowledge together. That's kind of the approach that I have for this podcast as well. Today, I'm recording outside because I need the fresh air. It's really hot in my house. I don't think the wind is circulating very well into the house. So I was sweating up a storm when I tried recording this earlier. I'm gonna try to turn, tune down the background noise because it's not super windy, but there is a breeze. And like any trucks and stuff that go by, but you're going to hear the hustle and bustle of city life. Uh, my street is quiet for most of the time, so hopefully nothing too heinous happens, but of course I'll just edit it out. And yeah, also inside my house, get this, there's a smoke detector that has a low battery in one of my roommate's rooms and no one has been home the entire month of August to do anything about it. So I don't want to have to edit out every single beep in the background. I just did that for a YouTube video the other day. It was very, very time consuming. So we're outside and you know, the ambiance in the background, maybe it's not too jarring. But anyway, I just got sidetracked. Let me go back to my script. Um, and I have, uh, so yeah, a student of astrology. I have worked as a consulting astrologer that was really integral to learning more and um, figuring out my approach to things and stuff like that. Um, so that was really integral as well. I don't do it right now. I will in the future. I just want to focus on studying on my own for a little bit. So I mainly blog via Twitter. I know I definitely need like a website, but somebody just tell the planets to stop doing whatever it is that they're doing. And maybe the atmosphere will be perfect enough for me to create a website but also I need the money for a website so that's an obstacle as well one day we'll get there but for right now I mainly blog via Twitter and I do like it more than long form actually uh, I like breaking things up into pieces I don't know why um, and I'm also beginning to emerge into video uh, like I was talking about before in the YouTube channel I'm starting to upload to that consistently we'll see how that goes and now podcasting of course which I've been wanting to do for 
years, probably since like 2010 when I was in high school and I had nothing to talk about. Nobody wanted to hear what I had to say. But now I actually have something that I can talk about that would be interesting to other people. So yeah, um, I guess I can share some chart information. Virgo sun, Libra moon, Cancer rising. Uh, most of my personal planets are in Virgo and Libra. I like to call my chart very pedestrian, uh, very mundane but it's it's not that boring it's it's an interesting life i guess in this podcast i'll be diving deep into topics within the occult world as a whole so astrology crystals tarot numerology magic stuff and like i said i am still on this learning journey aren't we all uh so definitely i this can be conversational i know it's like a one-way thing because it's a podcast but comment section on the youtube upload if you have anything to say anything to share anything to add and also the thread that'll be up on twitter with all of the uh, pertinent links and references and stuff like that Uh, we can have a conversation on there too Uh, i know again need a website need a landing page and a comment section where it can all be in one place but this is what we're dealing with, so that's what we can do. But yeah, so this podcast is a tool for me to really gain a full understanding of a topic that I'm interested in in order to teach you something new, to teach myself something new, or deepen my understanding, deepen your understanding. Maybe if you haven't been exposed to a topic that I talk about, it'll be inspirational for you to dive in on your own self-study. Each episode will focus on a specific topic and go really in-depth on that topic, and I'll give you everything that I've been able to learn about it so far in a somewhat condensed version just because how many like for example we're talking about the elements today how many adjectives can i use to describe the personality of all the elements there's just so many before it gets boring so i definitely cut it a little bit but i gave the overall essence of what you need to know and again it gives you room to uh think about these things on your own as well so yeah i'm excited for us to embark on this journey of understanding together so I also want this uh, podcast to have like an accessible language, to be super casual and fun, and we can become like parasocial best friends, because you know, that's that's how the internet goes nowadays, so <laughs> it's not weird at all. But anyway, let's get into the topic at hand finally. Pretty much everyone has heard of the four elements, as we know them, fire, earth, air, and water. Uh, if you go to anybody on the street just pick a random person make sure you're wearing a mask and you're staying six feet away from them but maybe you can just like shout in their direction because you know you have to enunciate because the mask is on your face so you shout at them you say hey do you know what the four elements are they're probably going to be able to tell you what they are because they're such a cultural phenomenon and even though we've expanded our science and the four elements aren't you know, descriptive of the building blocks of all matter, like they thought they were in the beginning, the philosophical aspect to the elements has survived into today's time. And it's still within our media um, and our culture. And fire, earth, air, and water are referred to as the four classical elements. Philosophers of ancient times and all cultures were preoccupied with finding out what the base of all life is. So today we're going to be talking about the classical elements as formulated in ancient Greece, as this is where the elements that are used in Western astrology come from. In my research, I did look at how a lot of cultures looked at the elements. Some of them were similar to what we're going to be looking at today. Some of them were very different, Um, but it's interesting that there's these similar philosophies and mythologies and stuff that have similarities and of course they have their cultural differences but there's like it it kind of connects us uh to each other the fact that we've all been able to kind of come up with similar things no matter where you are elemental theories were an attempt to describe the base substances that form all of matter in its complexity so we eventually come up with atomic theory and the only reason why i'm saying we and not uh, specifying who came up with atomic theory is because i didn't really research the science into it that much and i've been out of school for a long time i'm trying to make it through college but you know i'm getting a ba in psychology i'm not getting a bs so i don't really know science like that i'm not a science bitch as i would say so i'm gonna stay in my lane and talk about you know the philosophy and the astrology and stuff like that and uh, just use generalized terms when I'm talking about the science so I don't look like I'm talking too much out of my ass and I don't say anything stupid. (laughs) But yeah, so atomic theory 
everything's made up of, of atoms. They come together to form molecules, uh, which form chemical compounds, which create everything that we have on Earth. And instead of just four elements, we have a whole periodic table, and perhaps we even have more to be discovered. It is interesting, however, that there are symbolic similarities between the four states of matter and the four classical elements. So Earth being compared to solid, water being compared to liquid, obviously, and air being compared to gas, and then fire being compared to plasma. So we start to see the formation of the elements as we know them in the 5th century BCE with Empedocles in his pieces on nature and purification. Empedocles is the last Greek philosopher to write in prose, so his work was really hard to get through, and I did actually read it. Um, it was really interesting. He refers to himself as a god in the beginning, so I wonder if we referred ourselves as gods or to ourselves as gods, if like we could get more clout on Twitter, maybe we could get a blue check mark if we just proclaimed that we were divine beings. Um, originally, this piece, and we don't know if it was it was actually one piece or two or if it's part of a larger collection, uh, but they estimate that it had 5,000 lines originally, and only a third of them have survived. Not all of the lines are complete to this day. Some of them are just fragments of what we have before. So just if you imagine just all of the stuff that we've lost over time and how things would be different maybe if we um, still had these things or had them in their like pristine form when they were made. Empedocles also didn't really follow a specific school of thought which was typical at the time. You kind of had like a teacher that you studied under and you uh, weren't necessarily pressured to follow everything that they did as we'll talk about later but you it formed the basis of your understanding of things, um, but yeah, him being kind of on his own could have added to his god complex, I guess. Um, and everyone else around him at the time was arguing about which of the elements is the element that all the other elements stem from. But meanwhile, Empedocles was like, no, all four elements, he called them roots, uh, they're equal, and they're unalterable fundamental realities. And everything on Earth is just composed of different mixtures of these roots. Existence cannot pass into non-existence was something he was big on. He also states, For all these are equal and alike in age, yet each has a different prerogative and its own peculiar nature, but they gain the upper hand in turn when the time comes round. And nothing comes into being besides these, nor do they pass away. For if they had been passing away continually, they would not be now. And what can increase this all, and whence could it come? How too could it perish since no place is empty of these things? The force that binds the elements, according to Empedocles, is love, and the boundaries that separate them is strife. So the elements come together as their own separate entities to create matter, which is its own separate entity as well. Kind of like if you get sugar, eggs, all the other ingredients for chocolate chip cookies, you make the chocolate chip cookies like how you normally would make them, and then you create the cookie. Later, Aristotle, and we're going to talk more about him in a second, argues that elements transform into one another. It would be like if you could take those chocolate chip cookies and then separate back out the elements, and then also push them back together um, instead of, you know, things being more separate. At the time, the elements sought to describe how everything comes to be. Animals, the atmosphere, the earth, the sea, the sun and the moon. Uh, according to Empedocles, not every combination was successful, but the ones that remained, it was as if they were divinely intended. So it kind of sounds like a precursor to evolution, but that's not necessarily what he was meaning to describe. Um, like, if he did encounter Darwin's theory of evolution, he probably it would probably still seem like a radical concept to him because even though these ideas do have some like underlying uh, philosophical similarities, they're describing very different things. So Empedocles' ideas on the elements were the prevailing background of science, medicine, and philosophy for 2,000 years after he formulated them, um, until our understanding of science began to kind of evolve. We were able to test things in a more scientific way, and then we kind of moved away from the four elements as being building blocks. In the mid-4th century BCE, Plato was the first to call Empedocles' roots the elements. He was the first to use that term. And the word that he used that we translate into the elements is also a word that meant the smallest division. Originally, that same word was used to describe letters, which are the smallest division of words and phrases. Plato's student, Aristotle, uh, defined the elements as a body into which other bodies may be analyzed. 
And as I said, Aristotle theorized that the elements were able to be transmuted into and separated from each other. And he argues this in his work on Generation and Corruption, which was written in 350 BCE. And this is possible because the elements are made up of different combinations of primary qualities. There are four total, and they're grouped into two polarities. These qualities are opposing in nature because without that opposition, the transmutation of the elements could not occur. Because all matter, and therefore the elements are perceived through the senses, the qualities that make up the elements have a distinct tangible quality to them. They're universal, something that we can all understand, no matter language or background. So the active polarity is the quality of heat versus the quality of dry. Uh, they're associated with the base energy of the element. So if you think of water, when it reaches its boiling point, the molecules are moving really quickly. Um, when you freeze water, the molecules move a lot slower. Heat is expansive and dynamic. It's active. It's radiant. Uh, cold is absorbent and dense. Uh, it's contracting and static. The passive polarity is the quality of dryness versus the quality of moisture. So dryness is resistant. It gives structure. It's individualistic, separating. Moisture is adaptable, malleable, and fluid. Each element contains one active and one passive quality. And the qualities that make up the elements are as follows. Fire is hot and dry, earth is cold and dry, air is hot and wet, and water is cold and wet. So fire and air are both hot, they're both outwardly expressed, and water and earth are both cold, so they're turned inward. Fire and earth are both dry or resistant. Fire resists by burning too hot. Earth resists through persistence and permanence. Elements that share qualities transmute into each other easier than those which oppose, uh, which is the foundation of compatibility. In astrology, you've probably heard of fire and air being compatible and earth and water being compatible um, because fire and air make hot air and water and earth make mud. Um, is the idea. Fire and air are the ones that intermingle. Uh, so fire is tempered by air and vice versa. Water and earth also intermingle. Water nourishes the earth and the earth births and contains water. Earth is the densest of the elements located at the center. Uh, because it's held down by gravity, earth represents that which is permanent, durable, and fixed. Not necessarily like the modality fixed, but that which is fixed just in general. Water is less dense than earth, but still has density. If you think about the density of water, which is probably something I mean, at least I didn't often think about, but if you think about how like much pressure increases as you go deeper into water, or if you jump in a pool with your clothes on and you come out and it kind of weighs you down. The water element naturally represents the bodies of water on earth. Water turns dense materials more pliable and it's an aggregating element. It brings things together, prevents things from becoming dry. Air is very light. It represents the atmosphere. Because of its moist quality, air also has that unifying ability that I just described with water. Air is associated with transportation because sounds and smells are transported through the air. Fire is the outermost sphere. It is only noticeable through its radiance and its heat. Fire is something that creates and transforms. It also destroys. Aristotle also named a single quality of each element as the one that is most associated with it. So fire being mostly hot, air being mostly moist, earth being mostly dry, and water being mostly cold. Aristotle also proposed a fifth element as well um, as a force that kind of circulates above all four elements. It doesn't share any of the qualities with the other elements and it moves circularly instead of linearly. However, Aristotle's take on the elements was not widely accepted during his time, not even among his own students. For example, his students Theophrastus gives us the quality or gives the quality of coldness to air instead of, what did I say, uh, water? Yeah. And also, Chris Brennan talks about this in his book, um, but Aristotle con contradicts himself as well. In his more biological writings, he refers to air as being the sort of cooling agent in the body. So um, we also see this idea of air being cold when you look at the Stoic tradition, which again is something Chris Brennan talks about in his book. Um, in this tradition, each element also gets one quality, but fire gets hot, air gets cold, water gets wet, and earth gets dry. The Stoics also broke down the elements with the principles of action and passivity. So the passive elements are earth and water. They need to be sustained. They're dependent on something outside of themselves to do that sustaining. And the active elements, air and fire, are capable of sustaining. They're active, they shape matter, and the passive qualities are absorbing. They're the ones being shaped. 
in the Hellenistic period of astrology, the Stoic tradition was the one that was favored, interestingly enough. It's not until the medieval tradition where Aristotle's conceptualization of the elements and the qualities comes back into favor. After coming back into favor, it survived into modern day. So the elements uh, and the philosophy behind them permeates many different studies. They're associated with the four faculties, so fire equating to moral, water to aesthetic and soul, air to intellectual, and earth as the physical. And slowly different correspondences are being made towards the elements. The most influential of these correspondences is Hippocrates' association with the four humors to the four elements. Humorism is an ancient medical concept that might extend as far back as Mesopotamia, but it definitely was around during this time in ancient Greece. And according to what I was reading, it was actually very successful in treating illness, even though it's not very scientifically sound from like a modern point of view, obviously. Um, but it was around for so long, potentially, so it makes sense that it was something that worked for them. So humorism, it has to do with, like, bodily fluids. It's kind of gross. But let's talk about the associations. So fire is associated with a yellow bile, which sounds disgusting. Um, yellow bile is centered in the gallbladder. It heats up the body, and it brings energy and movement. Yellow bile is used to process the rest of the humors. Earth is associated with black bile, which sounds alien. <laughs> But black bile gives structure to the body that contains it. It's contained within the spleen, it gives consistency to muscle tissue, it solidifies bones, and apparently even strengthens memory. Air is associated with blood, and blood goes to and from the heart, so this humor also eliminates and carries substances through the body. It's contained within the veins and arteries. And then lastly, water is associated with phlegm, which literally, phlegm is like the grossest word ever. Um, phlegm corresponds to uh, the lymph nodes. It said lymph. I don't know if that means the lymph nodes, but I just kind of made that jump, so that could be wrong. Um, it's associated with mucus, though. Obviously, phlegm, mucus goes hand in hand. Disgusting. Um, and its function is to maintain body temperature and to lubricate the body. So, moving away from bodily fluids, let's talk a little bit more about Hippocrates, the father of medicine, the Hippocratic Oath. Have you ever heard of it? He's kind of a big deal. Um, Hippocrates was also kind of a revolutionary for his time because he argued that disease wasn't punishment from the gods, but instead a result of an unhealthy lifestyle or environmental factors. So he really separated medicine from religion which was a whole new way to look at things at the time. And beyond health, the humors and their amounts in the body were also said to influence moods and personality. After Hippocrates, Galen furthered this concept, Galen maybe, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, giving four temperaments. One temperament was a balance between the four humors. And then the next four of these nine temperaments were, each humor was given dominance over the other three. And then the final four temperaments in this nine temperament scheme had pairs of humors that would share dominance over the other two that were left. And the last four that I just described are what we now recognize as the ancient personality theory called the four temperaments, where sanguine is hot and wet, melancholic is cold and dry, choleric is hot and dry, and phlegmatic is cold and wet. And all of these were named and classified by Galen. The Latin word for temperament means to mix in the work uh, Canon of Medicine, a Persian polymath, Av Av Avicenna? Av Avicenna? Definitely don't know how to say that. My apologies. Um, but he said that the temperaments can influence emotional aspects of the personality, moral compass, mental capacity, and self-awareness. And then later on, Nicholas Culpepper again, not sure if I'm pronouncing that right. I probably should have looked all this up before I decided to talk on a podcast, but he tied the four temperaments to astrological correspondences in addition to bodily health and personality like other people were. The idea that survives through each iteration of this concept is that everyone has all four humors just in different proportions and thus everyone has all four temperaments in different proportions. The predominance of a single temperament heavily influences physical appearance as well as psychological makeup. Most people don't have one singular dominant temperament. I do um, and and we'll go through how to calculate that at the end of the show. So the choleric temperament in terms of personality is quick-minded and hasty. Hippocrates refers to them as being full of anger with a pulse that is swift and strong. It's a very bold personality and courageous. Through its quality of heat, the choleric temperament is considered extroverted, pushing that energy out there towards their goals. It's very straightforward and results-oriented. And through its quality of dryness, the choleric personality is independent. They're natural leaders who are out outwardly enthusiastic about their passions, 
Choleric individuals like to be kept on their toes because they're always ready for action and excitement. Obstacles are being met head on. The excessive heat can be insensitive towards more softer emotions, so they can be insensitive towards others who display those emotions, maybe even insensitive towards themselves if they start feeling soft. Um, they have that fight in them that can be short-tempered or even violent in extreme cases. The choleric temperament is highly reactive. It burns quickly. In terms of physicality, and these physicality descriptions are very white-centric, um, I've tried to make them a little bit more general by referring to undertones instead of saying pale and rosy and stuff like that. Um, but again, these were not written to be inclusive. I'm just trying to uh, speak of them in a way where it could potentially be useful. But yeah, cultural context, these were definitely white-centric in description. Um, but in terms of physicality, a predominance of the color temperament gives hair that grows fast, a skin tone that is apparently between red and yellow, which I attempt to modernize by thinking about in terms of undertones, like I said. So this could imply that the color temperament gives a neutral undertone. The skin is also referred to as rough and hot, whatever that means, and also coarse and shiny. Uh, the build is said to be slim, average to short, and muscular. The melancholic temperament values tradition, the tried and true. This makes them very cautious and often fearful of change or adventure. It's a cold temperament, so the melancholic personality is reflective, more introverted. These are deep thinkers who are detail-oriented, analytical, and thorough. They're considered introverted and reserved. Uh, they do not seek the spotlight, and instead of thriving on competition, the melancholic temperament is modest in expression, which can result either themselves or others underestimating their abilities or their dedication. The melancholic personality will persevere and see things through to the end um, regardless. The quality of dryness prefers solitude and is self-reliant. There can be this distrust of others. Um, the dry quality also gives dry emotional expression and are more fact-based and objective. Feelings aren't facts to the melancholic temperament. They're also susceptible to pessimism and melancholy, just as the name would suggest. Hippocrates says that they retain anger for quite some time, so there's that stubborn quality, and they're obstinate in emotions as well as their opinions. Because of their detailed analytical nature, the melancholic personality seeks perfection and can become intolerant towards anything less than that. Again, in terms of physicality, melancholic people have a smaller to medium build with a slim frame. The skin is described as being coarse, again, and cold. Their complexion may be dull or have warm undertones, specifically yellow, golden, and hair can be sparse. The sanguine temperament is described as well-balanced and not extreme. Like with the choleric temperament, the quality of heat gives the sanguine personality an enthusiastic, pleasure-seeking, and adventurous personality. They're also considered extroverted and spontaneous. There's very lively, optimistic, and outwardly pleasant demeanor. The quality of moisture paired with that extroverted nature that the quality of heat gives is very social and charismatic. They can be rather talkative and interested in a wide variety of topics. They're studious and inquiring. Sanguine is described as being naturally happy and friendly and is not one to hold on to anger. They can be easily bored and have a high tolerance for risk. Hippocrates describes the sanguine personality as being able to be brought to tears easily, which is interesting. Apparently this is usually due to worrying and overthinking. The hot and wet temperament can lack concentration and discipline. They can become restless. Social interaction can become superficial when this energy is unbalanced. In terms of physicality, the sanguine temperament is described as full and robust with an average to tall height. Skin may be oily. Their complexion is said to be flushed or ruddy with smooth skin. Like the choleric temperament, sanguine is also described as being hairy. And I wonder if that has to do with them like sharing that quality of heat because the hot temperaments are described as hairy and the cold ones are described as having more sparse hair. Uh, lastly, the phlegmatic temperament, speaking of that, has feelings and emotions as the baseline of their behavior. They're considered introverted just like their melancholic friends, but there is still a connecting quality that draws people to them. They seek close relationships that are harmonious and aim to preserve them. They're sympathetic and like to help those who are suffering. They're extremely loving and loyal to those they are connected to. And even though the phlegmatic temperament concerns itself with others' emotions, they tend to hide their own and can actually be quite inexpressive when it comes to emotions. However, they are driven by their own emotions. They're seeking security and safety, and they try to avoid conflict, so they make compromises. Their emotions can make them in inconsistent since they're so sensitive to change. 
overall, the phlegmatic temperament wants peace and relaxation. They're rather easygoing because the fluidity allows them to go with the flow. That fluidity can also result in apathy or laziness. It can be difficult to show determination. Hippocrates is kind of bogus when he just describes the phlegmatic temperament. He describes them as being fearful, slow, and cowardly. When it comes to physicality, the phlegmatic body is rounded with an average to small stature. The skin is described as soft, cold, and smooth. And like the melancholic temperament, phlegmatic hair is sparse, like I said, and flaxen. The elements were not always associated with the signs as we know them to be today. In Christian astrology, William Lilly devised the signs in many ways, the first of which he mentions is the four quadrants. These correspond with the seasons in the northern hemisphere, so the spring or vernal quadrant is hot and moist and is associated with the sanguine temperament. The signs that reside in this quadrant are Aries, where spring begins, Taurus, and Gemini. Gemini is the one who transitions us into the next quadrant. This is the summer quadrant, or the Aestival, I think is how you pronounce it, quadrant. The summer quadrant is hot and dry and associated with the choleric temperament. The signs that reside here are Cancer, where summer begins, Leo, and Virgo, which is transitioning us into the next quadrant, which is the autumn or harvest quadrant. Autumn is cold and dry and is associated with the melancholic temperament. The signs here are Libra, where autumn begins, Scorpio, and Sagittarius, which, say it with me, brings us to the final quadrant, which is winter or brumal, brumal quadrant. This quadrant is cold and moist and is associated with the phlegmatic temperament. And the signs that reside in this quadrant are, are Capricorn, where winter begins, Aquarius, and Pisces, which then Pisces brings us back to the beginning of the cycle. And these associations are also reinforced in Ptolemy's Tetrabiblos, Tetra where he says, of the four seasons of the year, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, spring exceeds in moisture on account of its diffusion after the cold has passed and warmth is setting in. The summer in heat because of the nearness of the sun to the zenith, Autumn, more in dryness because of the sucking up of the moisture during the hot season that just passed. And winter exceeds in cold because the sun is farthest, farthest away from the zenith. In the Hellenistic period, signs were broken up into triplicities or groups of three, but were not always associated with the elements and the temperaments, but more so the cardinal directions you'll see more often than with the elements during this time. However, these groupings were in the exact same order that become the elemental triplicities. Triplicities were also assigned planetary rulers without taking the elements into account. So in Dorotheus's uh, or Ptolemy's essential dignities tables, these were created, or at least the triplicities were, without having elements in mind. Some authors did begin to associate the triplicities with the four elements, including Valens, Firmicus, and Rhetorius. Valens also used the Stoic tradition over Aristotle's tradition, as was typical at the time, making the first triplicity fiery, the second earthy, the third airy, and the fourth watery. Triplicity 1 holds Aries, Leo, and Sagittarius. Triplicity 2 holds Taurus, Virgo, and Capricorn. Triplicity 3 holds Gemini, Libra, and Aquarius. And Triplicity 4 holds Cancer, Scorpio, and Pisces. This is also seen in Lily's Christian astrology as a way to categorize the signs after they've already been categorized by seasons. Valens, using the Stoic tradition, says that air being cold is opposite fire being hot, and earth being dry is opposite water being wet. And as Chris Byrne says, I think in the footnotes in this section of his book, that this idea is reflected in the opposing signs of the zodiac. So fire signs are across from the air signs and water signs are across from the earth signs and vice versa. The concept of the elements being the building blocks of all material structures is a philosophical idea that has survived in today, into today's times. The idea that all four elements are within us all, just in different concentrations, has also stood the test of time. Stephen Arroyo writes extensively about the four elements in his book Astrology, Psychology, and the Four Elements. He describes the quadruplicities, so cardinal, fixed, and mutable, as three vibrational modalities through which the elements express themselves. Arroyo defines the elements as specific types of consciousness and method of most immediate perception to which the individual is attuned. Air is described as the mind's sensation, perception, and expression. Fire is the energizing life principle. Water is the soothing principle of sensitivity. Earth functions in the world of physical forms with an ability to effectively utilize the material world. Arroyo also reinforces the idea that balancing the elements leads to a healthier disposition. We can also see Arroyo reinforce the Stoic tradition. He refers to fire and air as active and self-expressive elements because they're rising elements. He calls them Apollonian, which is everything that is actively and consciously 
forming life. Water and earth are receptive and self-repressive as they are under the influence of gravity. They're Dionysian that are forces um, that manifest instinctively. And Apollonian and Dionysian are things that he mentioned were ideas from ancient Greece as well. He didn't really get into specifics, um, but I thought it was interesting that he used that distinction instead of using gender. Um, gender wasn't really in his book, and also he tended to use traditional rulers as well as like mentioning uh, modern rulers but saying that they weren't as important when it comes to elements and temperament earth is the heaviest element it's representative of the terrestrial everything physical as we've learned earth is associated with black bile and the melancholic temperament it's cold and dry it describes the season of fall because the earth gets colder and dries out during the season earth is also associated with the direction of south on the compass its alchemical symbol is an upside down triangle with a horizontal line through the top third or i guess the bottom third if it's upside down where the tip is basically um modernly earth is also associated with the material plane it's everything that's tangible that which can be perceived by the five senses it creates form and substance the earth element wants to materialize their goals and receive tangible rewards for their dedication they're concerned with material security they're mastering the world of common sense the earth element's word is law. They keep their commitments and they fulfill their responsibilities. Earth also lives in the here and now. They're anchored in the present. They want to make sure their basic needs are being met. Earth's dry nature leads them to look out for themselves because according to them, they don't think anybody else will. Um, very self-reliant. When earth is overemphasized in a natal chart, the native can be kind of a stick in the mud or a fuddy-duddy, if you will. They're extremely cautious to the point of inertia. They can feel easily, or they can easily feel like they're stuck in a rut. And then having an underrepresentation of earth leads the native to feel ungrounded, unsupported. It's difficult for them to tackle mundane responsibilities and procrastination can be a huge issue as well. They can also be limited in imagination and have a narrow mind. And you can see the correlations between the melancholic temperament we talked about from the ancients and the modern associations with Earth. Plato used geometric shapes to illustrate the meanings of the elements, or to symbolize the elements, I should say. Earth was represented by a cube, which is a solid three-dimensional object. Earth is also represented by the pentacles in the tarot. Water is the next dense. It occupies the space between Earth and air. The element of water became more and more associated with emotion and intuition as we get into modern times. We already know that water corresponds to phlegm and the phlegmatic temperament. It's cold and wet and associated with winter. Winter is, or not winter, water is also associated with the West and its alchemical symbol is an upside down triangle. Modernly, water is associated with emotion and the soul. They're able to perceive the subtleties and the interconnectedness of everything. They're also aware of the unconscious factors that motivate people. The water element expresses itself through emotional understanding, intuitive awareness, and compassion. Water might not have a full conscious grasp of their own emotions. They just feel. They don't ponder on why. Water is also very self-protective in order to remain in tune with the world around them. Having an overemphasis of water leads to turbulent and uncontrollable emotions. They're undisciplined in feeling with an overemphasis of water, and others can perceive them as weak and needing to be protected because they're not doing that self-protective uh, quality. To themselves. They can be prone to dependency. Too little water energy leads to coldness and not being able to be sympathetic. To represent water, Plato used a 20-faced polyhedron, uh, which was said to be representative of the many facets of water energy. Water is represented by the cups suit in the tarot. Air resides in the space between water and fire. We know it's associated with blood and the sanguine temperament because it is hot and moist. The qualities of air represent the season of spring, the perfect environment for growth. Air represents the north point on a compass. Its alchemical symbol is a triangle with a horizontal line through the upper third. Air governs the social and mental spaces. It expresses itself through thoughts and sharing those ideas with others. It's a socially conscious element. Air is seeking social connections and challenges of the mind. They have a knack for theorizing, which are often impractical ideas, but definitely outside of the box. Air gains 
objectivity by detaching from personal biases, and this helps them to remain rational and gives perspective. Air energy is sensitive about its intelligence and ideas. They may seem to be lacking emotional depth because they don't allow themselves to feed into those more complicated and deeper emotions. Having too much air in a chart can leave the native with their head in the clouds. Uh, they're so in stuck in their head that it can be impossible to ground their ideas so that they can become reality. Not having enough air in the chart can lack perspective and objectivity and there can be very real difficulties with learning and communication. Plato symbolized air with an octahedron, which is smooth in form, which is illustrating that air is hard to feel. It's not like solid, but it's still there. Air is represented by the swords in the tarot. Fire sits atop the rest of the elements. Fire sits atop the rest of the elements. It's associated with a yellow bile and the choleric temperament, meaning it's hot and dry. Fire represents the summer season and its direction is east. Its alchemical symbol is an upright triangle. Fire energy is wrapped up in identity, seeking to realize that identity. It's a radiant energy that brings color into the world around them. Fire is an active force that energizes and animates. Fire energy is expressed directly. There's often a great faith in life and in themselves as well. Their strength seems unending, and you, they're usually in high spirits if things are going well but they can be quick-tempered, especially when met with too many obstacles. There can also be a lack of self-control associated with fire, because fire, if you think about it, is hard to contain. It can spread very quickly. Um, this comes through in their impatience and impulsivity. Having an emphasis of fire results in aggression, fanaticism, reckless behavior. If you have too much fire, anything in your path is being burned up, kind of like a wildfire ripping through a forest. With a lack of fire, there's a distinct lack of zest for life. There's an overall dimmed energy that seems like it needs some sort of pick-me-up like you need to go get a coffee plato symbolized fire as a triangular based pyramid saying it was representative of the sharpness of fire energy fire corresponds to the suit of wands in the tarot speaking of the tarot we can look at how these concepts show up through different mediums a predominance of any element in a spread is going to show an overarching energy of a spread as i already stated the wands correspond to fire the swords correspond to air the pentacles to earth and the cups to water wands and swords are active elements just like we see in astrology and then likewise pentacles and cups are passive elements in the tarot, the active elements have energy that's focused outward. They represent agents of change as well. The passive elements focus that energy more inward. They represent that which is adaptable and relies on its environment to be shaped. You can also use elemental dignities to determine how the elements are interacting with each other in a spread. When you have the same suit, the energy of that suit is intensified, which amplifies both the positive and the negative qualities of it. Suits of similar polarity support each other. They're effective collaborators suits that have opposite polarity weaken each other or neutralize the energy entirely depending on how different the qualities of the elements are. They either decrease the effectiveness of the elements represented or they cancel each other out. Wands represent that which is unpredictable and uncontrollable. It's the primal energy or instinct within all of us. It's our enthusiasm and zest for life. Fire is something that supports or it destroys. It's like it can heat your house or it can set your house on fire. All definitions of the word hot are represented by the wand suit, whether that's temper or sexual tension or literal hot temperatures. The wands represent drive and motivation. They can represent your personal power or powers being used against you. And the wands can also represent enthusiasm, but not knowing where to put it. Or it can also be like the search for meaning in something specific or life in general. Um, and yeah, tarot, of course, is very broad and also very contextual, so this is just kind of an overview. It's not meant to be an exhaustive list by any means. The pentacles represent all of the material things of our world. Money, commerce, possessions, property. The pentacles represent foundations. Are yours founded on support and nurturance? Are they reliable? The pentacles also represent what we're manifesting. It's our prosperity and our overall health of our physical body, making sure we're taking care of ourselves. It's what makes us feel grounded, or it may be telling us to ground ourselves. Pentacles can bring up issues of self-esteem, confronts us with how we see our place in the world. The pentacles can be the comfort that we get from predictability. It's the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it energy. It can also show where you're being stubborn. Uh, pentacles can also represent greed and possessiveness, and it's, they remind us that we can't take it with us. Air corresponds to the suit of swords, and air is something that you can't really grasp in your hand, but it's always there. It's either still or it's a powerful wind, which also relates to the double-edged sword uh, analogy. 
The sword suit are the winds of change. It represents knowledge, attitudes, logic, and belief systems. Knowledge is power, and the swords remind us of that power. Swords also represent conflict. Uh, it's also awareness and perception. Swords can also bring up feelings of judgment and guilt. Finally, the cups symbolize emotions, intuition, healing, and connecting with others on a deeper level, the relationships that we have with other people. The strength of water is dependent on its environment. It takes the shape of whatever container that it's in. Cups are a more subtle power um, com when you compare them to the wands, which are more imposing power. The wand suit shows us habitual responses based on emotion. It represents love, creativity, imagination, and serenity. Now in magic, the elements are also seen as the basis of all life. They're what connect us to the heavens. Magical practices surrounding the elements are focused on balancing energies within the self because it's something that strengthens your power. To connect with earth, you can do grounding exercises or simply be in nature. Working with the air element includes mantras, setting intentions, speaking, or writing out your goals. Connecting to fire, uh, you practice saying no and setting boundaries, you chase after your goals, and that helps you to align with the element of fire. Being assertive, standing up for yourself. Connecting with water can be as simple as staying hydrated and showering or bathing with intention. You don't even need to have like this extravagant ritual bath. You can literally just stand in a shower, envision all of your more complicated emotions and stuff being washed away by the water. Seeking balance with the elements has always been an important aspect to astrology uh, as well. Finding the predominant temperament can provide a good basis in figuring out where we're at, what is driving us, how do we navigate the world. So the method that I'm sharing with you is in the appendix of On the Heavenly Spheres by Avalar and Rib Ribeiro. The ascendant is the first placement of importance, then the moon and then the sun. Arroyo also said that these were the most important in determining a dominant temperament as well, but he gave most importance to the sun. So the ascendant is the most important factor in calculation because it defines the actual individual. The moon is next because like in Horary, it's a co-significator for the motivations and dynamics in the birth chart. And then lastly, the sun is the tone. We're mostly focused on the season that the sun sign is associated with, and then we score everything based on that. So the ascendant you take into account its sign, the sign of its ruling planet, any planets in the first house and their nature, and then the signs of any planets making aspects to the ascendant. The moon, you want to look at the phase of the moon, and I'll tell you which phases are associated with which qualities in a second. It's also the sign where the moon is located. It's the nature of any planets that are conjoined with the moon. And then the sign of any planets making other aspects to the moon. And then for the sun, you just want to look at the qualities of the season represented by the sun sign. Um, if the moon is aspecting the ascendant, when you calculate it the second time, you're going to use the qualities of the phase of the moon instead of its sign. If the sun is aspecting the ascendant or the moon, you're going to add the qualities for again, the season of the year, not the sun's sign. And you'll just count it twice. Um, for planets in aspect to the ascendant or the moon, all of the aspects except the conjunction. So sextile, trine, opposition, square, you're going to count the qualities of the sign that it's in. For conjunctions, you're going to ask, or, or you're going to add the base quality of the planet that's in conjunction. This will all make sense in just a second. If it's the sun or the moon, then you're going to consider the sun season or the moon's phase. Preference is given to sign-based aspects. We're not going to look at out-of-sign degree-based aspects, or we're not going to look at out-of-sign degree-based aspects. And the tighter the aspect, the better. I also, when I calculated mine, did not use outer planets at all. So the qualities of the signs are the qualities of the element that the sign is in. So Again, fire signs, hot and dry, air signs, hot and moist, earth signs, cold and dry, water signs, cold and moist. The north node is said to be hot and moist, and the south node is said to be cold and dry. So if those are aspecting anything, that's how you're going to want to calculate them. Saturn is cold and dry, Jupiter is hot and moist, Mars is hot and dry, Venus is hot and moist, and Mercury is slightly cold and dry. So the signs are taking on the qualities of the season that they're in. So Aries through Gemini hot and moist, Cancer through Virgo, hot and dry, Libra through Sagittarius, cold and dry, Capricorn through Pisces, cold and moist. Then we'll look at the phases of the moon. So the first quarter moon, this is going to be if you're born on a new moon where your sun and the moon are in the same position, up until sun square moon, it's going to be hot and moist. Then we have that square up to the opposition, 
which is going to be hot and dry. Then the opposition to the second uh, sun moon square, which is going to be cold and dry. And then anything from that second square all the way back to the conjunction is going to be cold and moist. So when I calculated my chart, I did um, my rising is cancer, which is cold and moist because we're taking the element of the sign that the ascendant is in. My moon, because the moon is ruled or cancer is ruled by the moon. So my moon is in Libra, which is a hot and moist sign. I don't have anything in the first house. And then the only aspect I have for the rising is Mars square the rising. That is also in Libra. So it's hot and moist again. Then for the moon, uh, my moon is within that first quarter because my moon is in Libra. My sun is in Virgo. And um, that means that the moon is hot and moist when it comes to phase. It's also in Libra, which is again hot and moist. I don't have any in-sign conjunctions. Mercury is conjunct my moon, but it's out of sign, so I didn't count it. And I, I don't have any in-sign aspects to traditional planets. Um, it does also have an out-of-sign opposition, I believe, with Saturn and some outer planet stuff as well, but I didn't count those. So then with the sun being in Virgo, that's the hot and dry season. And if we calculate that all together, if you need a visual, it's going to be in the uh thread on twitter i'll also link it in the link section on the youtube description just so if you if you are not understanding what i'm saying then maybe the visual will help you understand more but for points we have hot dry cold and moist so you want to give every time you see that word you want to give a point to the thing so i had five hot placements one dry placement, one cold placement, and five moist placements. So my dominant temperament is sanguine. And this predominant temperament frames the broader interpretation of the chart. It shows you the underlying motivating factors, and it's what you can build the rest of your interpretation on. And this is where I leave you. It was a lot of information. I'm very exhausted. Um, I, it was an all-nighter writing this, and then I recorded this this morning very last minute the rest of the weeks are not going to be this down to the wire but i wanted to get this out on the day that i set out to get it out and yeah so i hope you enjoyed the first episode of the occultish podcast when it comes to what's happening next time you know i've been really interested in finding out the history of crystals why they're such a cultural phenomenon how we've gotten these meanings that we got because we kind of take them for granted at least i know i do so where did this stuff come from how are they supposed to work why do we use them stuff like that so we're gonna look into that in two weeks i'm gonna report back with everything that i have found like i said before any appropriate links images anything like that to supplement the podcast as well as a reference guide for all the sources that i used for this podcast will be within the thread on Twitter and also the description on YouTube. And that Twitter again is class trology with an underscore at the end. So it's C-L-A-S-S-T-R-O-L-O-G-Y. And yeah, so um, if you enjoyed this podcast, tell your friends, give it a rating wherever you can rate podcasts. If you hated this podcast, you can tell your enemies uh, and then don't leave it a rating because your mom said, or at least she told me, but if you can't say anything nice, then don't say anything at all. And yeah, so I'm Shay Longini and this is Occultish. Thank you for listening and I'll see you in two weeks.